Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. This is episode 78, I think, uh, on uh, June 16, 2022, and I'm only one half of your host, as I'm learned from Yalta to say. Um, David Clement is joining us uh, uh, this, uh, this week. He was already on the podcast last week. Uh, as, a, as a short guest, and I thought, you know what, uh, David hasn't actually co-hosted this with me yet. We had uh, Elizabeth Hicks previously, Fabio Fernandez, so I wanted to get David on the program because I had so much fun co-hosting Consumer Choice Radio with him uh, recently. So, David, how's it going? Oh, it's good. It's good. It's good. How are things uh, across the pond? Well, uh, what are you, eight hours away? Nine hours away? Uh, well, what do you mean? Time zones or flight time? Yeah, time zones. Time zones is six hours. Six hours. All right. Well, in the yeah, future, so things are going great. Um, for okay, those of you who have seen that Family Guy episode where he goes to Rome and he's like, oh, I'm calling myself in the future. Um, and uh, no, everything's everything's uh, roughly fine, let's say. There's uh, some bad regulation uh, uh, incoming. We'll talk about that. We'll be talking about the yep. ban on the internal combustion engine. We'll talk about Germany's cannabis legalization as well and David nice. uh, having worked on this uh, uh, previously and uh, being in a country where it's actually properly legalized not so this gray zone model we have here in Amsterdam yep. uh, so we'll be talking about that so uh, David should we just get started yeah let's get to it all right let's roll so first off we have Germany's cannabis legalization this is something that everybody's been waiting mm -hmm. uh, uh, for for a while and we had Daniel Kadig from the European Liberal Forum on recently who talked about sort of his vision of what it should be and there's we don't have exact package legislation yet but uh, members of the government have made a, uh, enough statements so that we have sort of an, an impression there and I wanted you to get your reactions on what we know so far David and uh, and and we'll see. So right now, medicinal uh, cannabis is, uh, or therapeutic cannabis is also called in Europe sometimes, uh, is available uh, already in Germany and it's being sold at pharmacies. And that was sort of the big conversation. So should pharmacies be the sellers, which is sort of the, was it Uruguay has this model, right, David? Uh, they sell only in pharmacies? Something, yeah, something along those lines. I think in the, in the medical system, um, I understand the desire to go to pharmacies. Um, but if we're talking about adult use recreational, uh, it's far better to have that handled in the private sector like alcohol. Like imagine a scenario where you had to go and get alcohol from a pharmacy. Now, I don't know what the prevalence of pharmacies are. I mean, they are actually one of the, um, one of the few businesses that are uh, approximately... Uh, on a per capita basis, right? Everyone, for the most part, at some point in their lives needs access to a pharmacy. So they're usually quite um, quite distributed uh, in terms of their locations. Um, but I would say it's probably better not to treat a recreational product uh, like a pharmaceutical. You could keep medical uh, in pharmacies. Um, I know the German system is a little different than... Elsewhere, I'm not sure if this has changed, but I know that this was true in the past. There was actually drug coverage for cannabis prescriptions. Um, it was a bit of a cash cow for licensed producers who were able to sell in Germany because um, that created essentially like a price floor. Uh, and there was some guarantees in terms of how much money they were going to be able to make. Um the recreational market is different. You want that to be a lot more open and competitive in comparison to 
uh, how we treat medical. And I think that's actually one of the big lessons from, from Canada um, in terms of things to avoid. Uh, so medical had been legal in Canada for a long time. And the licensed producers who produced cannabis produced cannabis essentially under pharmaceutical grade regulations. Um, and in the very early stages of legalization, it was hard for them to scale up to meet the demand of the recreational market because obviously uh, the difference between producing uh, at pharmaceutical level regulations and food grade regulations, um, there's, there's a lot of area to cover in between those two benchmarks. And so uh, that would be one of my cautions to the German system when they do legalize adult use recreational uh, cannabis is to avoid um, keeping everything in that same model built for the medical market because it isn't built to meet consumer demand on the recreational side. And <clears throat> if you can't scale up and you can't meet demand, well, what happens? People just continue to buy uh, illegally, which um, undermines one of the core points of legalization. What, what you said about pharmacies is quite interesting because in Europe there's big differences on, on what pharmacies actually do for you. I'm sort of in the area of where pharmacies do the absolute minimum for you, right? I mean, you have, your, uh, you have a few of the OTCs and then you have your prescriptions and then you pick them up and that's it. When I was in the Balkans, I thought it was quite fascinating where in pharmacies they'll take your temperature and, and they have sort of a, they sort of treat you like so it's halfway uh, towards the doctor. And I think if you're in Bosnia, Boris uh, in the pharmacy would also fix your car. I think they do quite a bit <laughs> by comparison to the rest of Europe. What you said about the production levels is very interesting because there is a study in Germany that shows that uh, right now it produces about 20 tons of medical cannabis. Well, that's sort of the need of the market production. I don't, I don't know. I, I have to check exactly how that works yeah. for Germany also in the future. But that market will grow to 400 tons of both medicinal and recreational uh, cannabis. So that's a big volume yeah. right there. And, and you've pointed out in Canada, sort of the, the production levels, the volume. It can go bad either way. Either companies sometimes have a bit too much of it and the price drops or there's just not enough because the regulatory, regulatory burdens are too too stringent. Yeah, exactly. And and that's, I mean, we certainly don't have an undersupply anymore in the legal market in Canada because it's been quite some time. Um, but we did in the early days. And the reason why that's important, especially in the early going, is you have to think about who consumes, right? People, people consume cannabis illegally now, right? So they are cannabis consumers. They just don't buy it legally. You have to create a legal market that is accessible and uh, as consumer friendly as possible to draw those people back from where they otherwise buy cannabis. And the longer it takes to do that, the more you entrench the behavior of buying illegally. Uh, and that's certainly what we've seen in Canada. I don't know what the recent figures are. But I know as of like two years into legalization, the legal market was about 50% uh, of all cannabis um, purchased. And so, I mean, that's a lot better than, than 0%. Um, but there are a lot of things that can be done to get that number uh, closer to, in my opinion, 75, 80%. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's sort of the 
the the the aim that even governments seem to understand now that this is uh, to undermine uh, the the prevalence of the of the black market. Now, who will be able to buy it? Now, there the German Medical Association um, is lobbying for uh, at least twenty one. Uh, ideally, they say twenty five plus. Uh, which I find I find it, I find it a bit old. Uh, they have some other points where they say um, it's uh, it should be you know a certain distance from a school, a certain distance from a kindergarten, and so on. I think that those are sort of details. But on the age limit, what are the rules now in Canada, and what do you think makes sense? Um, yeah, so in Canada they're in line with the legal drinking age um, for the most part. So it's 19 uh, in most provinces, um, and. I think that that's probably the appropriate response. Now, that works in North America. I know that German alcohol laws are, are different. I actually don't know what they are specifically, but I know that, um, you may correct me if I'm wrong, I know that um, you can purchase certain types of alcohol much younger uh, than, than... You can get uh, you can get the soft alcohol, so beer and wine from the age of yeah. 16, and then the stronger, you have to be 18. Yeah, so I would probably argue that 18 uh, is a good benchmark. Um, that's the point in which you're legally an adult, right? You, you, you are legally an adult, I assume. Um, you can serve in the army, you can do all sorts of other... Uh, risky behaviors, you no longer need a parent or a guardian to sign off on um, certain decisions, medical or otherwise. So that's probably a good benchmark. Um, I think the important thing here is that there isn't much evidence to suggest that legal recreational cannabis makes more cannabis consumers, not in terms of like regular use. I think in Canada, um, youth usage has gone down um, post-legalization. I think that's mostly because it's not as taboo anymore. Um, it's not this, like, ooh, mysterious thing that the adults don't want us to have. Um, I think the only age group or age bracket where consumption went up was for people over the age of 65, and I've always been of the opinion, if, if grandma wants to smoke a joint, leave her alone. Who cares? Or eat a cookie. Uh, and I also, <laughs> yeah. And I also think that that's the, the, the inverse of the cultural question there is that, right, that's the demographic who grew up in the heart of the war on drugs. Um, being told that this stuff was evil and it was going to harm you and it was a gateway to heroin and all these other falsehoods. So they were sold a bad bill of goods for decades. And so I think it kind of makes sense that uh, some of the older people, especially if you're retired or maybe experimenting with, oh, I'll, I'll try smoking cannabis for the first time or I'll try a cannabis beverage or I'll try an edible. Uh, and I, to be honest, I, what the retirees are doing, um, I really don't care. That, that's, that should not be a concern of of regulators or public health officials and in fact there's probably an argument um, there's probably an argument given how medicated that community that demographic is uh, that if there was some sort of substitution effect uh, for example if they started using CBD products for inflammation as opposed to uh, other pharmaceutical drugs that's that might actually be for the better um, long-term in terms of health so um, that's one thing that I, uh, when we talk about age restriction, 
Um, there obviously has to be an age restriction, um, but you have to remember that making it legal and picking an age doesn't mean that everyone above that age uh, is just going to become a cannabis consumer overnight. Um, there just isn't much evidence for that. Yeah, and that's sort of my understanding as well, sort of with the American drinking age that, I mean, all yes. Americans sort of try, I mean, I think most Americans do try alcohol before the age of 21. And, and, and sort of the outlet of, as to how you use it um, is different, right? I mean, if you're in Luxembourg yeah. and you're, you're, you're 14 years old and, and, you know, you think, okay, it's only two years to go and then I'll be able to drink. But if it's six years uh uh six years or seven years away yeah. then you're like well i'm not why would i wait this is just too long and i think that the sort of age age limits have this is sort of a psychological barrier and sort of an understanding as to you know how also eventually how parents will educate their kids uh one question on on the thc levels because the listeners might be interested in that too um so uh here the germans say and this is also the, the, the medical association, which is quite influential on deciding what the rules uh, might eventually be. They say everything above 20% is, is, is dangerously associated with psychotic reactions. Um, and so they recommend a limit between 10 and 15% of THC. What are the rules in Canada and where do you think the line should be drawn there? That's a good question. Um, I don't think that the, the limits have changed or there, there is a strict upper threshold per se I'd have to actually brush up on how the Cannabis Act has been amended. Um, but what I would say is that there probably shouldn't be a THC limit, um, not because very, very potent uh, cannabis is, is you, like you want that all over the market, but in the same sense, right, if we're talking about alcohol, um, they're having having uh, forty percent um, alcohol per volume vodka doesn't available doesn't mean that everyone drinks vodka over drinking beer. People have different tastes, and if you prohibited anything, let's say over twenty percent, so like a, anything over like a fortified wine, there's going to be a black market for those products for the people who want them, and the thing is, it wouldn't be creating a black market for higher thc products um it would it would be emboldening it because it already exists um and so these products already exist you want the legal market to compete with the black market and so having that threshold is is um probably misguided um and then in regards to psych psychosis i think there's a bit of um uh, we see this a lot. We saw this a lot in Canada and the United States where the public health agencies are, are playing a, a bit of a game of hide the ball uh, where people who are predisposed to um, psychosis for whatever reasons, right? It could be trauma. It could be uh, medical history. Those are the folks whom, um, who may have issues with cannabis consumption. Um, it is not a scenario where cannabis consumption is turning uh, otherwise n healthy people uh, into having these these episodes of psychosis. And so there's a predisposition aspect to that. How do you solve that? I don't, I mean, we don't, like, how do you solve that for alcohol, right? There are people who are predisposed to alcohol addiction. Again, trauma, genetics, all sorts of factors. 
um, we don't um, we don't limit the availability of rum or or vodka or schnapps um, because some people happen to be predisposed to addiction. Uh, and so I, I really think that when we talk about legal recreational cannabis, it's important to take a deep breath and go, would this be an acceptable regulation for alcohol? And if the answer is no, well, then you have to, you, there should be an extra burden of proof needed to justify anything beyond the restrictions of alcohol. Um, now, for the age restriction, I actually do think there's a very solid argument to not have 16-year-olds consuming cannabis. There's there's pretty good research in terms of brain development and all of that jazz um, for young uh, minds. So that would meet that extra burden of proof. But in terms of THC levels or product variety, that was a big debate in Canada because when we legalized, it was only dried flour and oils. Edibles and beverages didn't come on the market for a year. Uh, and that was a huge mistake. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it, it's, uh, important, important to get those things right and just remember, okay, if this is going to be a recreational product for adults, well, how do we treat other recreational products for adults? Right. And I, David, I heard that Gen Z is also incredibly boring, so that might even not be an issue in the future. Well, they are. <laughs> yeah, they are. They don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't use social media. I'm, I'm really actually not sure what they do. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a great mystery to me. Other than maybe make TikToks, like I I just don't that I sound like such a boomer. But like people born before <laughs> nine, or sorry, people born after nine eleven are just like a mystery to me. Mm. Yeah, no, they. Um, it, it, I mean, get, that's how we know we're getting old. Um, yes. But on that, I, just one more thing I wanted to mention because I talked to somebody from Yellyneck, which is a Dutch. Um, uh, uh, drug use prevention uh, association, very good one, and and you know they deal with a lot of people. And I talked to a guy there, and he said, uh, "Look, in the Netherlands, the number one problem of addiction is alcohol, and then is cannabis right after." So it's sort of from from the perception we have of cannabis, we should be careful as to believe that you know there's no issue there uh, whatsoever. Um, and 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 he says. Um, because I asked him, like, well, what does that does does that mean? We should reevaluate sort of how we treat cannabis. And his reaction was, uh, just look at the, how this country looked before we legalized or practically legalized cannabis. I mean, the Netherlands had in, in the seventies some of the worst heroin epidemics you could yeah. possibly imagine, and that yeah. was sort of the alternative given. So he says, well, I mean, we we didn't trade something perfect. It's not that we traded it with something that was going to heal everyone and was perfectly healthy. Um, but I mean, in perspective, uh, uh, there's no, there's really no, there's no comparison here. I yeah. Mean, what, what the Netherlands did was really necessary. Yeah, it's harm reduction. But uh, not to parse your, your previous guest's words, but there's also different understandings of addiction, right? Um, so when I say this, I mean, there are substances which are chemically addictive, nicotine, heroin, though, like of uh, caffeine, chemically addictive. Um, there are activities that are addictive in a different way. Um, gambling, sex, cannabis. Uh, so there's different levels of, of, how we understand addiction and then really you have to understand whatever the root causes of addiction are is it a predisposition is it trauma 
Um, there was a very good um, documentary back in the or just before legalization that really helped push uh, legalization over the edge in terms of uh, North America that looked at that subject and was like, well, we talk about drug addiction. This was all drugs, but we talk about drug addiction, but we're not doing a very good job of uh, of talking about how or why people get addicted. Um, and so rules that kind of slap on regulations or prohibit substances in the name of trying to avoid addiction usually just push people predisposed to addiction to unregulated products or more dangerous products. Uh, in this, I mean, with any, with any illegal market, people try to economize their dollars. It's the reason why crack existed or exists. Um, people trying to economize cocaine usage. Um, it's in many senses the root cause of the fentanyl crisis um, in North America, where uh, on both sides of the transaction, the dealer side and the, the purchaser side, people are trying to economize and get more um, out of their high. When you have legal products, again, going back to alcohol, if vodka is your drink of choice, it's your drink of choice. Um, but because it's available, doesn't mean that everybody consumes it. But if we had an illegal market, you might be a little more predisposed to get more bang for your buck uh, in terms of alcohol percentage if you're taking the risk to make an illegal purchase. Um, and that's something that a lot of people forget, is that this that is the scenario in which black markets create. They actually encourage consumers to engage in riskier behavior um, as opposed to legal markets where people really, most for the most part, consume based on what their preferences and tastes are rather than what do I need for alcohol? What do I need to get the drunkest the quickest? Um, that's not necessarily the case for your normal drinker. Uh, it may be the case for someone who has addiction problems, but it's not the case for your average um, healthy consumer of alcohol. David's so nuanced. I think they should have you on the talk shows on, on German TV to talk about uh, cannabis legalization. Uh, another issue that I wanted to address with you, because the European lawmakers tell us that there is another addiction we need to fight, and that's our addiction to uh, petrol cars. Um, and uh, the, reason, uh, the reason here is that this is bad for the environment, and the European Parliament just introduced, uh, or let's say supported, a ban on the internal combustion uh, engine uh, by 2035. Now, the European Council still needs to uh, decide whether it wants to go down this route, but it all looks like this because the European Commission already supported it. That means that, David, if you want uh, the newest Volkswagen in the diesel or uh, a regular petrol edition, you'll have to uh, buy it before 2035 because after that, there won't be any more. Um, so as somebody who has to drive, because as far as I understand, Canada, tran public transport friendly, get, going between cities, probably not the best. Uh, what do you think? Is, uh, is, this, is this comparable? Will this eventually be replicated where you live? Or do you think this is a, maybe a bit rash of a decision? I mean, I think it's putting the cart before the horse. So, um, the, the, so electric vehicles um, are a net benefit for the environment. However, there is an asterisk there, is it depends on what is powering the power grid. 
right? You plug your electric vehicle in. If you're in Kentucky and you're plugging your EV in in your garage and your power grid is connected to a coal plant, that is not better for the environment than driving um, a standard passenger vehicle. Um, And so look at the conversation Europe is having in regards to Russian gas, right? So you're plugging your car in to a power grid powered by Russian gas. Is that better for the environment? I'm not sure because we have to see a cost-benefit analysis and net emissions and things like that. But in order to go a direction where you want everyone to have an electric vehicle, you probably have to ensure Uh, that your energy supply is consistent uh, and consistent in a way that doesn't offset the benefits of electric vehicles. Um, And I mean, obviously, right now, there's a there's a very regressive aspect of this, um, because electric vehicles are expensive. um, And it's going to take a lot more competition in the Yeah, very expensive. And it's going to take a lot more competition in the market to drive down EV prices. I think that should probably be a priority for European policymakers. How do we make purchasing an electric vehicle more attractive to consumers? It's a great uh, policy goal. But um, for lower income folks, uh, it's very difficult or impossible to buy an electric vehicle Uh, And if you don't create a system where, or a market um, that is open where EV manufacturers can scale up and offer uh, low price or discount models to consumers, well then essentially everyone from the middle class and up will transition. uh, And the mode of transportation for those who are of low socioeconomic status uh, will be in jeopardy and, and their cars will be illegal. And they won't be able to afford a car. And depending on where you live, maybe that's manageable with public transit. But it certainly isn't for some. I mean, think of like rural areas of either Germany or France or or what have you. I mean, there is only so much uh, that can be done uh, in that regard. And so I, I understand the policy goal, but it has a lot of externalities. And if you want an EV future... I think really the focus should be on accessibility, availability, price. Once you solve those, you have to have a serious conversation about the power grid um, and and how these things are charged and where they're charged. Is this something that are are these charged uh, in your home? Are they charged in public? Is there public charging stations? Answer all of those questions first before you ban the alternative to them. Um, would be my position yeah the charging the charging stations we've seen that the more you go to central and eastern europe the less uh the less charging stations you actually have and certain routes you would not be able to do with sort of a one 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 of the electric cars that are sold right now sort of the smaller ones would not even be able to go from a to b because you'd run out of charge presuming you were fully charged when you left so i think that and 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 as per the prices of these vehicles i i you know like Maybe you'll tell me I'm wrong, David, but I have a crazy conspiracy theory here. I don't actually think that they want poor people to drive a car in the future. I think the idea that individual mobility is something to be preserved is not something that lawmakers are actually keen on. I think the idea here is that 
yeah, these cars are going to be expensive and only available to some people, and the rest just get on the bus, you know. Yeah, out. and I think that that's a bit of I, I don't I don't know if they would say that part out loud, um, but I do think that there there is a bit of a class divide in terms of how policymaking is done, right? Um, members of European Parliament, national, national legislatures, it's the same in Canada and the United States. Policy is driven by highly educated, predominantly uh, urban-based, um, I hate using the word elites, but I'll use the word elites. Um, and those people really, you should, I yeah, think it fits perfectly. Yeah, but they have a really hard time understanding uh, what life is like for people outside of of that that worldview. And so, if you're in a major European city, right, you're in Berlin or you're in Paris, yeah, I mean, public transit is it's accessible. It can get you most places. Uh, but if you're not, it's it's not there. Um, and, and I mean, that's certainly true in North America. Um, if you live an hour and a half north of Toronto, the area where I'm from, there's no way to get around town via public transit. Um, I mean, there's ways to get to major points, um, even like where I am. There's ways for me to get from where I live to the main train station to take me to Toronto. Um, but there's really no public transit option to get me to uh, the recreation center or, or the grocery store. And so what do you do for, like, the reality of life for those people? I mean, telling them too bad is is pretty regressive um, and, and not great. And then uh, some people would have the pie in the sky. We see this in, in, in North America. Well, people can bike there and that works in some places in europe depending on how dense they are um, it doesn't in north america because our cities are not dense enough uh, and it doesn't work anywhere outside of major urban cities and it doesn't work anywhere uh where it's cold um or too hot uh right we're talking about climates where in the winter you're looking um i mean i'm guesstimating european levels but cold climates in, in Europe, you're looking at, I don't know, six degrees to minus five degrees, depending on how far north you go, and then obviously colder if you get up to Scandinavia. Um, you're obviously not biking um, in those temperatures. And then in, in warm climates, you're looking at 35, 38, 42. You're not biking to the grocery store to pick up 10 kilograms worth of groceries hauling it on your back and and biking 10 kilometers home it's just not happening exactly and and i think people will often give um amsterdam as an example here and they'll say oh why can't it all be like uh, like like amsterdam and i and i say look i mean if somebody wanted to make this country perfect for cycling this is what it would have created. I mean, there's hardly any altitude changes. The weather, because it's it's close to the coast and, and the location it's in, it means that in winter it doesn't really. We don't have really negative degrees. Uh, it rains, but I mean everybody's used to it because they bike so much and so on. And in, in in summer it doesn't go above 25 degrees Celsius. It's made for this, right? And you have all these small supermarkets. I always pick something up on the way. I don't know how old people are supposed to do it in the city, by the way. But I mean, uh, um, but there's another there's another aspect of it. I think that we also 
also, uh, I don't know if it's what you want to call it, recreational or so on, um, is spontaneity. You know, when we got the access to a car for the first time, we could spontaneously decide to take a few people to the lake. Now, if I want to just spontaneously decide to go to the lake, I mean, unless public transit was developed to have a bus go every 10 minutes spontaneity just goes away you will not decide randomly to drive to a protest or attend this event because it's just not feasible with the options you have and i think sort of the the things that some people imagine where public transport gets you everywhere that's a utopia on such a level i don't even like i don't know what, what kind of movies you need to have seen that you could go anywhere at any time that's just not and i think that would that if we give up individual transportation i think that's also what's being taken away from us there yeah i mean that's a good point and then talk about whatever the the spillover economic consequences of that would be right you just consolidate economic activity along bus routes forever um and that's probably not great for healthy cities it's not i mean it's the same argument actually against a lot of north america's zoning laws which consolidate economic activity into one uh, area whether it's commercial or manufacturing and so you have these pockets but if you don't live near those well you have to drive to where the beer store is where the grocery store is where uh, the pharmacy is where the doctor is, etc., because that's where zoning has permitted it. What you're describing is is kind of another version of that, where the economy isn't just is just entirely centered um, around where the bus stops. And yeah, you could increase the frequency um, and routes for that, but it's that would be in, in, you'd have to have local um, local politicians who are prepared to one really ramp up taxes and run all of these routes at a loss um there's a funny example from here where there they the the previous provincial liberal government created a a train route from toronto pearson airport to downtown toronto um which is a great train uh it can be very useful uh, but it operates at a huge loss uh every year because there's just not enough demand for it um, and how they priced it originally, nobody took it, then they cut the price, and now it operates at a loss. And so that may be fine in terms of one uh, very valuable route in terms of convenience, but you to spread that out across an entire city of 1.5, 2, 3, 4, 5 million people, um, you're looking at huge losses um, in terms of local budgets. And I'm not sure how European cities are set up tax-wise, um, but there's an incentive for them not to do so um, by virtue of the people they raise property taxes on or the people who they have to court votes from. And so there's this weird loop of, well, we want this, but we don't want to do what we need to do to pay for it because we'll get voted out. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it is a bit fantasy land, I think, for, for the folks who think that you could create a, a completely public transit future um, and in many instances, I mean, it depends on where you are. Some some places get it really, really, uh, do it really well. Uh, some don't. Uh, some cities have terrible public transit. Um, I mean, 
I, and also, I, and also for the Europeans who talk about what North America should look like, I always, you know, I, I would like to introduce them to maps and scales. Like <laughs> North America yeah. is much larger. The, your cities are much larger. The distances needed to be traveled are much larger. And and I think that 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 really plays into it. You can't just replicate that out of the out of nowhere. Yeah. So like a funny, com- I was just gonna say a funny comparison is I can drive for twenty four hours straight, and I will still be in Ontario. Think about how far you could drive for 24 hours in Europe. Wow. Where would you end up? I um, I would probably end up all the way in Portugal and drive into the sea. <laughs> David, uh, it was a pleasure talking to you today. Uh, that was as much time as we had uh, uh, for today. Uh, just remind listeners where they can find you on Twitter and so on. Yeah, at Twitter, at Clement Liberty. Uh, that's the best place to see everything that's going on. And check out all of David's work on the publications page and on our blog, where David also David's media hits in Canada are published as well. David, thanks so much for joining the Consumer Podcast. Thank you. You have to learn.